Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is Intelligence Matters, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. Brian Mora is the author of the new book, The Able Archers, a novel based on a true story about how humanity narrowly avoided extinction in the fall of 1983. Brian spent his career in intelligence and national security, beginning as an Air Force intelligence officer and then as a senior executive in defense industries. We just sat down with Brian to talk about his book, about that dangerous fall of 1983, and about how this relates to the world today. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Brian, uh, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you on the show. Well, Michael, thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Congratulations on your new book, The Able Archers. It just hit the bookshelves, and I can attest that it's a great book. It's a page turner. I could not put it down. I read it in two sittings of a few hours each. It's a terrific book, and it's a novel. I want everybody to know that it's a novel, but it is really a harrowing reading because It's a fictionalized account of real events, almost the end of the world, literally. So I think folks should go out and get the book and read it. I think you'll really enjoy it, and I think it'll give you a great perspective on a piece of history that, quite frankly, doesn't get talked about very much. But Brian, congratulations on the book. It's fantastic. Well, thank you very much for that, Michael. Um, 
the Able Archers uh, is the name of the book, and I, I decided to write a novel rather than a nonfiction treatment uh, because I, I thought a, a novel might have a better shot at reaching a wider audience, frankly, and and I think it is an important set of events, as you just highlighted, that deserve to be better known. And so I thought a novel would be perhaps a better vehicle. A dramatization that's more character-driven would be a, a better vehicle for, again, getting kind of getting the word out, so to speak. Yeah, it makes it, I think it makes it more sticky. Um, and that's the way I look at docudramas, right, on, on TV, right? It often is much more compelling, um, many more viewers than, than, than documentaries. So I could not agree more. But because it's a fictionalized count of real events, where I'd love to start, Brian, is I would love to start with the actual history and walk folks through that before we actually talk about the book a little bit, and I have, do have some questions about the book itself, but love to go through the history. And the way I'd like to do that is I'd like to tee up some dates and get you to say a few words about those dates, if that's okay. And the story you know, starts, I think, in, in May 1980 with the creation of Operation Project Ryan. Is that how you pronounce it, Ryan? Yes, generally in in English, uh, people do call it Ryan. Uh, the Russian pronunciation, since it is a Russian acronym, is a bit different. But yes, Ryan. I can is, go with Ryan. That's probably yeah. easier for me to pronounce. Okay, great. So, yeah. what was Project Ryan, and why was it put in place? Well, as I as I mentioned, uh, Ryan is a Russian language acronym that stands for nuclear rocket attack. And the implication is it's a surprise nuclear rocket attack. Uh, and that tells you a lot of what you need to know, I think, about what Ryan was about. But it, it, it was initiated, uh, the project was initiated by KGB chairman at the time, uh, Yuri Andropov. And it, it was a global KGB intelligence collection operation that actually spread to the GRU as well, to Soviet military intelligence. Uh, and the purpose of Operation Ryan was to find indications of U.S. slash NATO plans to stage a decapitating nuclear first strike against the Soviet leadership. So that, that in essence, was the, the purpose behind Ryan. So the next important date, Brian, is January 20th, 1981. I knew exactly where I was on that date. It's the inauguration of President Reagan. Why is that important to the story here? Well, President Reagan is an important player in the Able Archers, and I, I, I do have him as a character, albeit in the background, if you like, in, in the book. Uh, Reagan becoming president is important because uh, those of us who remember those days, uh, Ronald Reagan took a very assertive stance vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, he, he, he kind of uh, amplified that stance in a number of speeches that he gave uh, over the course of the first term of his presidency. Uh, particularly two speeches 
that I think are, are best remembered perhaps uh, to history, uh, both of which occurred in March of 1983. Uh, the first of those two speeches was uh, his uh, so-called evil empire speech uh, in which President Reagan called the Soviet Union the focus of evil in the modern world, amongst other things. Uh, and then just a few weeks later in the same month, March 1983, uh, he gave a national address uh, revealing the existence of the Strategic Defense Initiative, which uh, was a, a defense program designed to create a defensive umbrella, if you will, uh, over the United States and its allies to protect from missile attacks, ICBM and sub-launched ballistic missile attacks from the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviets viewed this as highly provocative and felt it was it fit within their pattern uh, that they were looking for in Operation Ryan, uh, in as much as the Soviets viewed the potential creation of uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative, this umbrella, as a means by which the United States could conduct a first nuclear strike with impunity. Uh, in other words, the United States could attack the Soviet Union and then sit behind its its defensive umbrella, uh, effectively negating the effects of a Soviet retaliatory strike. So those are some of the important uh points or speeches that President Reagan made uh, in March of 1983. And do we know, Brian, do we know how the Soviets read the evil empire speech, how they thought about it? We do. We do. Uh, Again, it it fit a pattern for them of behaviors uh, in which the West, the United States uh, in particular, was provoking the Soviet Union, uh, calling them names, calling them an evil empire, for example. Um, uh, Later in the year, Reagan used rhetoric of a similar nature in the aftermath of another event I know we'll get to, uh, in which he accused them of barbaric behavior. Uh, These are real trigger words for Russians in general who don't like to be accused of barbarism. I suppose no one does, but uh, they're particularly trigger words for the Russian psyche. Uh, so the Russians viewed the evil empire speech uh, as being highly provocative and very, very negative and, and uh, uh, one that they found um, uh, to feed into their paranoia about right. the United States. And, and then coming right on the heels of that, the Strategic Defense Initiative or Star Wars speech, as it was known by many or named or termed by the much of the media in the West, um, just seemed to reinforce that notion that uh, the the West has a very low opinion of us. They think that they can create an umbrella to negate billions and billions of dollars of investment in nuclear forces. um, And uh, and and they're not to be trusted. And it just fed into this general narrative that was prevalent in the Kremlin of paranoia. So, Brian, I want to just jump back to the previous fall, because there's another important date, I think, which is November 10th, 1982, which is the the death of Brezhnev. 
Yes, another very important event in this whole saga. Uh, Brezhnev passes from the scene and he is replaced in short order by Yuri Andropov, uh, the aforementioned chairman of the KGB. And, and Andropov had been chairman of the KGB for over two decades. Uh, he succeeds Brezhnev. Uh, he brings the, the, the paranoid view the paranoid view of the West to really a fever pitch in the Kremlin. Um, and his accession to power is a very important uh, step along this uh, this journey that leads us to the events of the fall of 1983. Okay, and then just, just two weeks after the Star Wars speech, so on April 4th, 1983, there's a U.S. naval exercise in the Pacific Tell us what happened um, and why it was important. Yes, the, the U.S. Navy uh, staged the largest exercise it had ever staged after World War II in the Pacific uh, in late March and early April of 1983 called Fleet X-83, uh, in which the U.S. Pacific Fleet sent three carrier battle groups up into the Sea of Okhotsk, which is in the northern Pacific. Uh, the reason that the Sea of Okhotsk is important is that the Soviet Union then, and Russia today, view the uh, Sea of Okhotsk as an inland sea, in effect. It's surrounded by uh, Siberia, the Kamchatka Peninsula, Sakhalin Island, and the Kuril Island chain. It's used as a bastion area, as a, a hide location for Soviet nuclear submarines, their ballistic missile submarines. So the Soviets uh, don't take very well to people swimming uh, or putting carrier battle groups <laughs> into their inland sea, into their lake, so to speak. Um, what the culminating event uh, of that exercise was when two of those U.S. carrier battle groups were exiting the Sea of Okhotsk through the Kuril Island chain. On the 4th of April, 1983, uh, at the conclusion of this large naval exercise, two U.S. carrier battle groups were transiting south through the Kuril Island chain, and F-14s and F-4 aircraft, fighter aircraft, from those carriers overflew Soviet territory. And more insulting to the Soviets, uh, the F-4s practiced mock bomb runs on Soviet military facilities in the Kuril Island chain. To make matters worse for the Soviets, uh, they had a MiG-23 fighter base in the Kuril Islands and not a single MiG-23 got off the ground during these incursions. Uh, so not only did the U.S. Navy uh, conduct these mock bomb runs, but they got away with, that, with it without being intercepted by any Soviet aircraft. Uh, as a result of that incident, the uh, Soviets issued a formal demarche uh, to the U.S. ambassador in Moscow complaining about these overflights as an act of war. And uh, in the Soviet Far East, where this all occurred, air defense officers were purged because they didn't react to this obvious uh, provocation uh, by the United States. And it set up a series of events 
in which uh, air defense forces in the Soviet Far East then went on a very heightened alert and began intercepting uh, U.S. intelligence collection aircraft in an unprecedented way. And if you're if you're a Russian officer or, or you're a Soviet officer out there and you've just watched a bunch of your friends get purged, you're not going to make that mistake again. So, Brian, if you're if you're a Soviet officer out there and you've just watched folks get purged for failing to respond to this U.S. overflight, you know, you're not going to make that mistake, um, which which brings us to the really important date when things really heat up, which is September 1st, 1983. What happens? Yes, in the early morning hours, local time, um, Tokyo time, uh, a Korean Airlines passenger flight, uh, KAL-007 was its call sign, uh, which was a 747 with 269 passengers on and crew on board, was shot down by a Soviet air defense fighter uh, just off the coast of Sakhalin Island. And the uh, 747 crashed into the body of water known as the Tatar Strait, which separates uh, Sakhalin Island from the mainland. And there were no survivors. And what happened? What did the Soviets see? How did they respond? Why did they shoot it down? What happened there? The the series of events of that night uh, were as follows. Uh, the It really started with uh, a planned Soviet ICBM test. And the Soviets would launch ICBMs from Central Asia, and they had a landing zone in the Pacific Ocean off of the Kamchatka Peninsula. So between the Kamchatka Peninsula and the Aleutian Islands off of Alaska. And because we knew about this test, uh, the U.S. Air Force had an intelligence collection aircraft which was based on a Boeing 707 flying orbits in that area off the Kamchatka Peninsula. The Korean airliner, uh, just coincidentally, made a navigational error. Its crew made a navigational error. And they ended up flying through that orbit of that U.S. Air Force intelligence collection flight. And the U.S. intelligence collection flight returned to its home base in Alaska. The Soviets, by the way, never did conduct the ICBM test that night. The 747, the Korean airliner 007, continued along its way, its errant way, well north of the established planned flight route that it should have taken, and it overflew the Kamchatka Peninsula and overflew Petropavlovsk, which is the largest city in Kamchatka. But more importantly, Petropavlovsk is a major uh, naval base for the Soviet and the Russian Pacific Fleet. Uh, It is the home base of a number of uh, strategic uh, submarine, uh, ballistic missile launching submarines. And so as a consequence of that, it was a highly protected very secretive place for the Soviets. So the 747 flies right over it in the middle of the night. Soviet air defense forces 
once again, this time they do react. They get off the ground. The fighters get off the ground, but they can't locate the 747. And the 747 continues along its way uh, unmolested across the Sea of Okhotsk, the aforementioned Sea of Okhotsk, and is uh, undetected by the Soviets again until it approaches Sakhalin Island. Once it approaches Sakhalin Island, uh, the Soviets do detect it. Their radar systems do detect this flight. And the Soviets send up uh, several flights of fighters to intercept the 747. They eventually, one of them, uh, an Su-15, Sukhoi-15, does eventually effect a successful intercept uh, and shoots the aircraft down uh, just off of Sakhalin Island. Now, um, we do know that the the fighter pilot um, of that Su-15 did attempt to make contact with the 747. He fired tracer rounds across the nose of the aircraft, um, but it was the middle of the night and the air crew on the 747 probably wasn't paying a lot of attention to what was going off, you know, going on outside uh, of the aircraft. So they never saw these tracer rounds. And uh, since the aircraft was unresponsive, the 747 was clearly violating the Soviet border. The Soviets gave target destruct orders to that fighter pilot and he he successfully engaged and shot down the 747. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Brian Mora. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So the story moves forward here, Brian, to September 2nd and 3rd, just a day and two days later. The issue I'd love you to talk about is the heroism of someone named General Donnelly. Yes, uh, General Charles L. Donnelly Jr. was the commander of U.S. Forces Japan and 5th Air Force. He was dual-hatted, as they say in the military, uh, at the time of these events. And uh, General Donnelly uh, really deserves a lot of uh, historical recognition, which he's never really gotten, I think, for being one of those individuals who prevented an escalation to World War III in the fall of, of uh, 1983. So what happened on the dates that Michael describes is that uh, as the U.S. and the Soviets both were attempting to, number one, look for potential survivors from this aircraft, the KL-007, and secondarily, in an attempt to find the black boxes from that aircraft, uh, there were a great number of aircraft, uh, military uh, aircraft, as well as naval ships that were converged around the crash site in a very narrow area. And on the 3rd of September, uh, a U.S. Navy EP-3, which is a large turboprop aircraft configured for intelligence collection, 
with a crew of about two dozen, uh, was flying in the area and was misidentified by the Soviet air defense hierarchy as violating the Soviet's border, violating their airspace. It actually was not doing so, but Soviet radars being as unreliable as they were, they tracked this this particular aircraft as a border violator. As such, they um, scrambled MiG-23 fighters to intercept the EP-3, and they were given target destruct orders. In other words, they were told to shoot it down. Um, we were intercepting these communications in near real time, and we knew what was going on and, and that these MiG-23s were out after the EP-3. Um, in the command center I was working in, uh, I was the chief of analysis of intelligence analysis there. Uh, we uh, were able to alert the uh, pilot and co-pilot of that EP-3 that they were in mortal danger, and uh, they took evasive action, which for them, their only real evasive action was to uh, dive from their nominal altitude of about 25,000 feet, dive for the wave tops, and in an attempt to lose the MiG-23s and, uh, and use the clutter, the radar clutter from the wave tops as a way to camouflage their position from those MiG-23s. Simultaneous with that, with that evasive maneuver, um, General Donnelly, uh, again, the commander we mentioned a moment ago, had pre-positioned uh, F-15 fighters on combat air patrol. And at, at that particular point in time, there were four F-15s on combat air patrol flying over uh, the northernmost I island of, of Japan, which is Hokkaido. And General Donnelly ordered them to intercept the MiGs. And uh, which the F-15s did do, and they successfully intercepted the MiGs. The MiGs, meanwhile, were uh, flying, uh, diving for the wave tops themselves in an attempt to find that EP-3, which they did not. The EP-3's evasive uh, maneuver worked. The F-15s had a uh, successful intercept on the MiG-23s, and we're in a position to shoot them down. Uh, General Donnelly, uh, very cool-headedly, uh, told the F-15 pilots once he knew the EP-3 was safe, once he knew the Navy plane was safe, he ordered those F-15s to return to their cap position. And uh, he famously, uh, at least to those of us present, said, uh, I'm not going to start World War III this afternoon. So there's a hero on the U.S. side, General Donnelly, and on September 27, 1983, there's a hero on the Soviet side, Lieutenant Colonel Petrov. Yes, uh, a fascinating figure in history is Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov of the Soviet Air Defense Forces. And uh, Petrov, on the night of the 26th, 27th of September, 1983, had been called in to serve on watch duty at the Soviet's National Missile Defense Center, uh, which was located about 100 kilometers or so south of Moscow. Uh, he was called in to duty that night, not because he was a regular watch officer, which he was not. He was 
an algorithm developer, a signal processing expert who had a team of engineers working for him. But he was called in that night to serve on watch duty because of the illness of a colleague. So Petrov is there in the National Missile Defense Center. And uh, shortly after midnight on the local time, Moscow time, on the 27th of September 1983, the Soviets relatively knew, they'd only been on orbit for a year or so, uh, missile defense, missile warning satellites picked up indications of intercontinental ballistic missile launches from Grand Forks Air Force Base in the United States. Um, the confidence level, according to the satellites, of these launches was quite high. There actually turned out to be a series of three uh, launches, quote-unquote, because there there were no actual ICBM launches, but the Soviet satellites detected three different waves of ICBM launches within the, within the course of about 20 minutes or so. Uh, Petrov uh, assessed, with the help of his team, that these were not real launches. They were most likely false alarms. Uh, but the, as the waves kept coming, I think that call became more and more difficult to, to make. It was probably relatively easy for him on the first wave. But when wave two and wave three came, it, I'm sure that the pressure went up on him enormously. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Um, Brian, then we get to November, early November, 1st through the 11th, and we within that time period, November 7th and 8th, what happened? Well, in those first couple of weeks of November of 83, NATO uh, conducted a very large-scale and hyper-realistic nuclear warfare exercise that was called Able Archer 83. There had been Able Archers in the past. They were run every two or three years or so. Uh, But what made this one unusual, if not unique, was that it coincided with the actual deployment of new U.S. nuclear weapon systems into the European theater, uh, namely the Pershing II missiles, ballistic missiles into West Germany, and uh, 
ground-launched cruise missiles or Glickums uh, into the United Kingdom. And one of the reasons the exercise was was held when it was held in November of 83 was because of these impending deployments. The It made sense from a NATO standpoint that they wanted to test command and control procedures relative to these new weapon systems that were coming into the theater. Unfortunately for the world, it couldn't have come at a worse time. Uh, the paranoia in the Kremlin had reached a crescendo. Uh, remember, we spoke earlier in the hour about Operation Ryan, and this Able Archer 83 exercise seemed to fit perfectly with the kind of indications of, an, of a surprise nuclear attack that the Kremlin Yuri Andropov had been looking for now for several years. So Abel Archer 83 was uh, a particularly ill-timed event coming on the heels of the Korean airliner shoot down, which had raised uh, alert levels all over the world. And only the Soviets knew of the Petrov incident, but the Petrov incident put the Soviets even more on edge. Uh, so, Again, Able Archer's timing was uh, untimely. I'm going to let people get the book and learn why or how we avoided nuclear war in November. But I just do want to ask you, how close do you think we came to nuclear war in 1983? And how does that compare to the Cuban Missile Crisis? I think that um, some of the key differences between the Cuban Missile Crisis and the crisis of 83 are as follows. Uh, one point is that by 1983, the nuclear arsenals of both the United States and the Soviet Union were much more potent than they were in 1962. That isn't to say that the 62 crisis wasn't bad because it was very bad and, and would have been enormously destructive. Um, but again, the arsenals in 83 were something else entirely. Another key difference is communication, uh, or I should say lack thereof. Uh, in 62, you'll, most of us will remember, or from our history will remember, that uh, President Kennedy and uh, the Soviet leader Khrushchev were communicating. They, were, they had official communications going back and forth between the Kremlin and the White House. And moreover, uh, President Kennedy assigned his brother, the Attorney General, Bobby Kennedy, to open up a back-channel line of communication through the Soviet ambassador in, in uh, Washington. So there was, there was communication going back and forth. There was signaling going on. That did not happen in 1983. Um, after the Korean airliner shootdown in September, uh, communications be, at, at least at the senior levels, between our Secretary of Defense, George Shultz, and the Soviet's Foreign Minister, Andrei Gromyko, had essentially ceased. And uh, uh, Ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Dobrynin, who had been the same, he was the ambassador in 62 as well, he tried to open up lines of communication in Washington and, and met with, with a lot of resistance. So there was there was almost zero communication going on between the Kremlin and the White House. And what that meant 
was that the potential for miscalculation was almost incalculable. And uh, one had a scenario in which each side knew what it was doing, but they had little insight into at least the intentions of the other side. We did see indications of what was what was uh, of nuclear war preparations. And on that third point, preparations for nuclear war, the situation in November of 83 on the Soviet side of the ledger, the preparations for nuclear war were simply unprecedented. Um, uh, unlike anything we saw in 1962, again, I'm not saying 62 wasn't bad, it was, but in 83, we saw uh, preparations for nuclear conflict and conventional war um, in the the group of Soviet forces, Germany, in the northern groups of forces of the Soviet Warsaw Pact. So theater nuclear forces going on alert in an unprecedented way, conventional forces being sent to the field with two weeks of rations and ammunition. On the On the strategic side of the ledger, we saw alerts that were unprecedented in the Soviet bomber force. And most alarmingly, we saw the Soviet ballistic missile submarines leave their ports and go to their wartime launch locations under the polar ice cap. So uh, the preparations were were uh, chilling. So Brian, I think one of the, the, the amazing things about the book is that you're a player. You, Brian, are a player in this story. Uh, one of the characters uh, in the story is your alter ego, which which um, doesn't come through. I mean, you told me that later, but that makes it even more chilling. So when when folks read this book, you know, realize that that Brian is a player. And just very quickly, Brian, who are you in the in the story? Well, the character there are two main characters in the in the book. Uh, one is an American, and one is a Soviet. And the American character is an Air Force captain uh, named Kevin Katani and he is he is my alter ego but um, he he is based on me but he's really an amalgam of not only my experience but that of others that I knew at the time so he's he's a blend so I, I, I would I would suggest to readers not to take everything Katani does says or experiences as my personal experience although uh, there are critical moments that were my personal experience, like the night of the Korean airliner shoot down, for example. What meaning does does all this have for today? I mean, we are we are wrapped in this crisis of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What should we take away from the Able Archers about today? Well, as we know, uh, Vladimir Putin has already played the nuclear card, uh, in a sense. In this current crisis, he's issued veiled warnings um, about nuclear war. Um, his foreign minister, Lavrov, has issued not so veiled warnings <laughs> about the potential use of nuclear weapons. Um, so there, there is a specter of nuclear war, the prospect for at least a theater nuclear war, that hangs over the current crisis and is clearly influencing decision-making, um, at least on, uh, on the part of NATO. So I think there's, there's that similarity. I think, uh, the, 
the the book the able archers is largely about crisis management at the end of the day i mean it's really about how does one navigate through uh, a potentially existential crisis for the world and decision makers policy makers today are doing it in real time aren't they i mean they're they're having to navigate a very treacherous terrain that could could escalate um, the escalator, escalatory arc uh, of the crisis today could mean cyber attacks. You know, in the last day or so, chemical weapons attacks have been discussed, and then of course the specter of kind of nuclear hanging over things. The uh, an, another similarity I think between today and 1983. Um, is the isolation of the leadership in in the Kremlin. And in 1983, Yuri Andropov was, um, as we've already discussed, a rather paranoid individual who had initiated this Operation Ryan program. Uh, And he was isolated certainly from public opinion, which didn't count for anything much in the Soviet Union. Uh, we have a Vladimir Putin who is increasingly isolated and I would say paranoid about NATO and NATO's intentions. Um, it's been well documented. I think that uh, Putin's isolation has grown during the COVID pandemic. Uh, all, one only has to look at some of these bizarre photographs of Putin sitting at a lengthy table at one end and the people he's meeting with at the other uh, you, you couldn't find a better metaphor for isolation, I suppose. But he's largely, as many of you will know, been outside of Moscow throughout the last two years. He's been in Sochi or uh, located at a, one of his dachas outside Moscow. So there's, a, there's an intense isolation uh, from an, and insulation from a, the reality that the rest of the world is living in, which I think is similar to uh, 1983. Um, one one last thought about 83 is that Yuri Andropov was terminally ill uh, during the 83 crisis, which we know from released documents after the fall of the Soviet Union, we know alarmed some of his closest advisors, um, and they weren't quite sure what he might do as a result of that illness. So I uh, I think, uh, I, I guess the if I'm not sure there are lessons to be learned, but there are certainly things to contemplate uh, in terms of of crisis management, of miscalculation, of miscommunication. One of the things that I, I mentioned it was the lack of communication in 1983, and we're seeing uh, very little communication today between the Kremlin and the White House. Uh, we have other interlocutors who are attempting to have communication, like President Macron of France and the Prime Minister of Israel. Uh, but I, you know, lack of communication is not a good thing during a crisis like this. It can lead to miscalculation, particularly when I think we have two sides that really don't understand each other very well at all. Exactly. Brian, thank you for bringing the crisis of 83 to life, both for us today, and more importantly, in your book. And I think you did it, you know, in a work of fiction that 
is very powerful. I hope the book does extraordinarily well. The book is Able Archers, and the author is Brian Moore. Brian, thanks for joining us. Michael, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. That was Brian Mora. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.